Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 353. This program is dedicated by David Schatzkammer. And I would also like to honor my dear father today, the 20th of year, his 16th yard site. How can we not begin with that which is so heavy? and has torn our hearts apart. The terrible and horrific tragedy in Miran, on Lagba Emer, the day when the Rashbi, Rab Shimon Bar Yechoi, requested that Jews forever and ever should celebrate on his day of his Estalkus Ilula, the Rashbi. And so it has been since his passing back in the 12th, 2nd century. So we're talking about almost 1900 years that Jews gathered and celebrate. Those that were able to would go to Miron, the greats, Rarizal, and throughout the generations. So the questions are many. The pain and grief is deep. We cry and we grieve together with the families that have lost loved ones, children, teenagers, adults, scholars, leaders. I mean, bottom line, people from all different walks of life that came together to celebrate. And I don't want to get into the graphic details that death in such a fashion, but we're left... Uh, stunned and silenced. Chassidus applied means applied to every situation in life, including the hard ones, the difficult ones. So obviously we cannot ignore this topic and this issue. So I'm addressing it. I did release a video on Lagba Emer Friday that talks about it somewhat making it very clear that answers we don't have. But we still forge ahead because we cannot allow ourselves to be paralyzed by the pain and by the questions and by the sheer unfathomable parameters of this tragedy. And what Jews have always done well, I mean the word well is a very relative word, but I mean well successfully, was that despite the deepest pain and despite the deepest questions, we channeled it all into growth <clears throat> and into positive activities and to build stronger and stronger. What God is thinking, we don't know. His thoughts are not ours. The mysteries of God's ways begin not just when there's death and tragedy, it begins with the very existence of, our, of, of existence itself. The very life itself is part of God's mystery. And life, the way God created it, comes with, unfortunately, sadness and pain and loss and illness and death. And at times, we pray that it should never be so, but at times, even such gruesome and tragic situations. At the same time, the same God gives us strength. And the verse that keeps coming to my mind when I think about it is related to Lagbaim and related to Rashbi Chsidis brings it the Rebbe Marash in his classic Hemshechai Vodim Levarach Tofresh Lamet Ches. In chapter 25, he discusses how Rashbi is connected to the Posik and Hazinu Machatsti Vani Erpa. I have wounded and I will heal. Machatsti means many things. It could be wounded, it could also be crushed. Machatsti also comes from the word Mechitza. A separation. So the very fear, fact that um, there's a possibility for death is already separation. Separation between life and death, between soul and body. A separation between the source of eternal life, which is, of course, and when there's some hefsik, some schism, some mechitza, partition, separation, that's the root of death itself. 
in the language of Chassidus and Kabbalah, Tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is a form of a mechitza, a machatzti, but at the same time, God says, erpa, I will also heal. So Chassidus talks about the Tzimtzum is Bishvil Hagili. Though the Tzimtzum did conceal the divine completely from us, and yet its intention, besides the fact that it does not a concealment from God's perspective, and it's not kipshute, it's not a literal concealment, meaning it's not a literal removal, rather it's a concealment, it's a concealment with a purpose in order to reveal, and reveal something even greater than what was there before the tzimtzum. So it's hardly a consolation when you're dealing with such tragic events, but it's still something that we need to keep in mind. You know, at this point, our focus needs to be on being strong, being there for the people who have lost family members, praying for those that need a, a complete refor shlema, and our hearts come together, our souls come together, in grief, in tears, and that's right now the most important thing when you're dealing with literally open graves and and wounded hearts and and uh, all the shock that's coming with it in the next few days that ready has come and will continue to come. But at the same time, that too, that grief is also part of the process. And I'm not saying we need to be told to grieve, but still, it's not like just our weakness. God says, yes, grieve and cry. Don't just say everything is good and it's really revealed good, a hidden good that will be ultimately revealed. Sitting Shiva is a mitzvah. And the greatest people, even those that always were connected to God in the deepest ways, also cry and grieve. That's how it is. So it's not just because of human frailty, it's the way, the process. And it's a part of the healing. But at the same time, the goal is obviously, how do we honor these 45, whatever the number may be, neshamas, how do we honor the loss? And the way to honor them is not just to cry, it's ultimately to build. And that's the approach that we need to take. Now, I have to receive many, many questions on this topic just in the last few days. As a matter of fact, just as I was about to go to broadcast, a few more came in, so I'll have to save some of them for the next week and uh, address them. But obviously it's on people's minds and hearts, and uh, that's exactly why we're talking about it. At the same time, we also look to the Torah this week's Parsha is Bahar B'chul Unfortunately, Bahar B'chul talks about curses, and we'll address it also from that context. But I'll try to keep this program focused around the thing that's on our minds and try to take Siddhis and Torah in general and apply it to this situation. <clears throat> so, so, in answering how can we, how do we even begin to address the horrific tragedy in Miran on Lagba Emir? The answer is there's two elements. One is recognizing that we don't have an answer. And we don't even try to find an answer because no answer can justify it. It's a certain element of respecting and honoring something that's beyond us. And that's the best way to respond. Because by trying to contain it in human logic and human rational understanding is actually in many ways demeaning it. You can explain something like this, fit it into another formula, another algorithm. So the silence that comes with it is not out of helplessness and surrender, out of weakness that is, but it's a surrender out of strength, recognizing that this reveals that life in general is a mystery, not just moments like this. And that is, yes, honoring those lives. It's recognizing that we're not going to explain it and rationalize it this way or that way. It's important to say that because there is the tendency that some of us have is to point fingers, to try to find what caused it, only God can answer that question if he chooses to answer, and even God not necessarily answers these questions. When the ten martyrs, the Asari Arugi Malchus, were being 
in the most the most horrendous way were being killed and the Malachim and Moshe Rabbeinu came to cry out to God this is Teda this is its reward what does Hashem say be silent be quiet that's how it arose in my thought I don't want to analyze that right now but even Hashem answers that so it's not just us that we don't understand. Now, I don't want to put it in these words because it may sound a little sacrilegious, but Chassidus does talk about God, that there are things that God himself has not yet come to a state of understanding, meaning it's not yet manifest in a comprehension or a logical structure. As a matter of fact, Chassidus talks even about Rotson, that God is not yet even aware of his Rotson, of his desire. What does that mean? Because awareness itself is a creation. Awareness itself is a state of being. Atmos, the essence of the divine, is beyond any structure and any type of definition, including consciousness and awareness and rationale and reason. So there is, even in the divine highest levels, states that are beyond reason. There's states that are beyond darkness and light and beyond the life and death. This doesn't mean it's a state of oblivious, even though there's expression as well that there's levels that are completely oblivious and aloof. But that's another discussion. The point being is that we cannot fathom that because we are people of structure. And even when we say silence, that's also part of our structures. But it's somewhat of a taste of something beyond. So in a strange and an unwanted way, when one suffers pain, loss, death of any sort, in a way you're touching reality pre-structure. Because once there's structure, then obviously we talk about God being a good God, teva tev lahetiv. And even in the highest levels we're talking about that. But still a definition. If we were to talk about God himself without existence, you wouldn't have to say good and not good. That God is good? Why would you ever even think otherwise? In other words, it's a goodness because he's fundamentally that way, not because it's a defined state of goodness. And then this goodness comes into a defined state, which is the beginnings and the roots of existence itself. Because the definition of existence is structure. That's what existence means. It's a structure. It's this and not that. On the highest levels, it's a defined state. When a person suffers or a person goes through an experience that defies structure, is actually reaching that transcendent place that's beyond light and dark and beyond good and evil and beyond life and death and beyond all the parameters that we're so accustomed to. And yet the same God that's beyond it all created the structure and stated exactly what he would like and said, I want, I want you to have a good and blessed life, in a revealed way. So how do you reconcile the two? We reconcile the two because that undefined state has chosen to define himself and define the structure of the cosmic order, and even higher, before the tzimtzum, in these manners, that there's a light, there's God's, Yecholte lahoyer, his capacity to radiate and illuminate light. Yecholte shaloy lahoyer, his capacity not to illuminate, to conceal, to refrain, to power of tzimtzum. From there will come the root of all the challenges we have, including the harshest ones. But those are already defined tracks. And then there's a place that's beyond them all. Now, is this a consolation? It's not a consolation but it's trying to understand, understand. It's trying to give some context. Not in the words of understanding, pure say that you understand, but context to realities that are far beyond ones we will ever comprehend and ever relate to. And yet we do experience it. So in a strange and bizarre way, it's when tragedy strikes. Again, something unwanted, unexpected, and something we absolutely pray for to avoid in every possible way, but when it does happen, 
it throws us into a reality that is not of the structures of existence. And yes, we are alone then with God alone in this dark, for us dark and desolate place, and for God it's beyond dark and light. And yet, within it all lies the mystery of rebirth and growth and regeneration and becoming stronger as it has always has been, as, as, as it has always been from the time when we left Mitzrayim, where it said, As they were oppressed and afflicted, in direct proportion to that, they blossomed and flourished and grew. And we see that not just words, we see it in reality. Look what happened as the Jewish people traveled through history. Both collective and personal pain was turned into catalysts and seeds for growth. Those that sowed in tears will reap with joy and pleasure and simcha. May it be quickly, may we reveal the greater growth from all of this and above all, our hope is that we're coming to closer to Mashiach even though the question is, this all seems to be like setbacks. But yet, we always get closer to Mashiach when all will be revealed and we'll be reunited with all the neshamas, those who were taken from us in one way or another, tragic ways, or I don't want to say natural ways, but in all manners. And we will only celebrate the Simcha Salem al Resham, permanent and forever only revealed joy. <clears throat> is this adequate? No. So the second part of it, which I really did address, so one part is the silence and the, the little awe that we stand in a state of, when I say awe, I mean, I don't mean awe, in a, I mean overwhelmed by something that's completely beyond us. And the second half is the rebuilding, understanding that there's something that we need to do. And it is a wake-up call a wake-up call to each one of us, to introspection, as the Rambam says, it would be cruel to say something just happened, a catastrophe happened by accident, mikronikris, but to look inside our own souls, not to point the fingers at anybody else, to look inside our own souls, in our own lives, what we can do to improve, especially in a day like Lag Ba'imer, proving our unity, in our love, in our unconditional, non-judgmentalism, to eradicate every form of divisiveness and eradicate every form of any negative behavior that we all know our actions have consequences. That does not mean, again, that this happened because of our actions. That no one has a right to say. But at the same time, we're also not ignoring it. We look at ourselves and say, how can I become a better Jew, a better person, more connected to God? And yes, honor these beautiful people who were taken from us prematurely and in this horrific fashion. Okay, so a bunch of questions came in which I was debating whether I should even read them. But because people are thinking this way, I think I should read it just to address it. And I want to say as a big disclaimer at the outset, especially, literally, we're talking two days ago when this happened, that... Um, that some of these questions may sound distasteful to, to some of us. But since, again, people are thinking this way, I think it's important to put things on the record and clarify. Of course, the immediate connection people are connecting with at the time of Sfira, which is where in the period between Pesach and Shavuos, we had the death of 24,000 of the students of Rabbi Akiva. So some are equating, trying to equate. And again, I say... There's no room for that at all because we have no right to try to explain anything. What do we know? And it's critical to recognize that. But yet I will read some of the questions and, um, and I apologize if anybody's offended by it because I immediately will clarify and qualify um, the points here. So, one person asked, did the Rebbe once say that even after a tragedy, like Bahamut Parade should still go on? 
because we move those that have passed out of the way to let the bride walk through. In that case, why are mourners not allowed to attend concerts or joyous events during the year of mourning? Move the, those that have passed out of the way and bring out the disco ball. Okay, I mean, I don't know if it's appropriate this time to make such uh, references, but let me say this. Yes, in Tovshin Mem, Lag Bremer, that would be 1980, and there was actually a parade that year. It was a Sunday. Lag Bremer, that was when the Rebbe spoke in Russian, some of you may remember. Regardless, there was a tragic, in Hebron, a tragic terrorist attack. And quite a few lives were taken from us. And there were those that wrote to the Rebbe, should we continue with the taluchas, with the parades and the celebrations and the events that were taking place on Lag Ba'imr? And the Rebbe responded that Mavirin is akala. In other words, when you have, let's say, there's a chuppah going on, you don't cancel it, but on the contrary, it supersedes a Leviathan. That doesn't mean the Leviah doesn't happen. It means that the Chnosah's Kala and the Simch of that should not be disturbed. Now, God, the Halacha is clearly not suggesting that you don't cry and you don't grieve. A death is a death and that person has to sit Shiva and the Leviah has to go on. The Rebbe was suggesting, was saying, so in that context, which is Simchas Shadash B, though, yes, we cry over that tragedy, we don't cancel which tells us that the way to grieve, that's because the Taylor wouldn't tell us not to grieve, the Taylor, the way to grieve when you have a simcha is right now is through simcha. And a moment later, you follow the halachas regarding the levaya and so on. So to compare that, as case that a mourner should go to a concert, so first of all, a concert and other such events are not Achnosas Kala. Achnosas Kala is a mitzvah. It's a tremendous mitzvah. Welcoming and greeting, escorting a, a bride to a marriage is one of the greatest events celebrated by the Torah. So that supersedes. But a concert is a completely optional thing. A person sitting shiva, you don't go to concerts. In the days of Svira, we don't have concerts. Lagba Emir is the exception for this reason. <clears throat> so I'm not sure what the comparison is even. At the same time, as I discussed at length earlier, grieving is not a contradiction to Simcha in Judaism. It's all part of the human condition. It's all part of what God wants us to do. And there's a time when we grieve. There's a time when we celebrate. And in a strange way, they actually complement each other because one leads to the other. Because ultimately the grieving is in order to bring a greater simcha. That's why we find strange uh, um, juxtaposition that says Kishem, just as Moshe Rabbeinu designated seven days of mourning, he also designated seven days of celebration, Sheva Brachas, and the seven days of that come after a marriage, seven days that come after Grieving, seven days of grieving. So what's the connection? The Gemara says something similar. Just as when Av, the month of Av, enters, we diminish. Enjoy. The same thing, when other enters, the month of other, we increase in joy. Okay, it's fine. We have two different statements, but bring them into one as if one is leading to the other. So one of the explanations is because they are two parts of one larger reality. And yes, ultimately, the purpose is ultimately to transform them. It's never an end in itself, grief and sadness. All, everything is leading to Eir. Okay. Did an incident once happen in the Beis Amigdash where a person was killed because he was crushed by a large crowd? How is that possible if we have a precept, Shemer Mitzvah Le Yodah Dover Ra? 
The truth is I did not have time to look up if such a story happened. If anybody's aware of it, please let me know where the Gemara is, if there is indeed such a Gemara or Medrash. And regardless, the question is still a good question. Here Jews came to do a mitzvah, and look what happened. And we know when you're doing a mitzvah, yes, it's a shluchim mitzvah in the zakin, a person who's a messenger doing a mitzvah will not be in any way hurt. And here we see, well, I don't have an answer to this question. It goes into the same category of I don't have an answer. We're told that, and it makes total sense. You're doing something for God. God will protect you and should protect you. And yet we find exceptions. You know, the Gemara talks about Elisha ben Avuya, who later would be called Acher, the other, when he saw one of the things that affected him so deeply and turned him into an apostate was when he saw someone, a father telling his son to climb up and to be mekayim the mitzvah of Shaluch Hakan, the mitzvah to send away the mother if you're going to take its, its chicks, its babies. And it says in the Posuk, that when you listen to your parent, that the reward for that will be you'll have long years. And it says the same thing by Shaluch Hakan. That will cause you to have because you had Rachmanus on the mother. And here, the fellow fell over the ladder and died. So a double, a double seemingly defiance of the very verses that say he will live long. Instead of living long, while he's doing the mitzvah, the exact opposite happened. So you can imagine a sensitive soul, a person who really believes in God, what kind of what kind of uh, shock that would create. Without going into the details, what happened with Acher afterwards, we don't have an answer to these questions. This is part of the mysteries of the big tzimtzum, the concealment, and the concealment of the concealment. So I don't have an answer for you. We cry about it, and we cry to God, and we demand, we demand justice even, you, God himself, we quote God's psukim, psukim from the Ebershter, we say, why? Admosai, till when? What can we do? Yes, we have a right to challenge God. That still doesn't mean we know that God runs the show. At the end of the day, God will say yes or no, or his yes will be on his terms, not necessarily always on our terms. But... We have the right. That's why we daven. That's why we cry. And we demand and we say, you told us to be good people. And we're trying our best. Why sometimes do bad people do good things, bad things happen to good people? And yet we take that with all the crying and demanding and still turn it into a positive force. <clears throat> Is there an Esoyan to have a crisis of doubt? To a crisis of faith? Of course there's such an assignment. As a matter of fact, the more godly you are and the more you love God, the more shocking it is. You know, if you're oblivious or you're apathetic, but someone that really cares is going to be more disturbed than ever. And yet, and yet the end story is we do not lie down and die. We dig deeper and we forge ahead. Another few questions Rabbi Akiva's students died because they didn't respect each other. Yeah, the Gemara says, They did not show respect to one another. Is it fair to say that dozens died in the tragic stampede in Miran because they didn't respect each other and were cutting the line to get inside and pushing and shoving elderly, elderly people and children? Here's where I resisted really reading this because it really was very, to me, extremely disturbing even to receive such a note. But I received more than one like this. Much more than one. So I felt I have to address it head on. Even though, as I said, I'm, I'm repulsed by even reading it. Why am I repulsed? This is not a time, first of all. Any time, but especially now, is not a time to be pointing such fingers. From my point of view, these people were all tzaddikim. They came there to do something that should be asked, a simcha. Are they, were they perfect people? Are we perfect people? Who's perfect? Nobody's perfect. 
start pointing fingers like that, especially in a time like this. So no, I will not accept that to say such a thing. And this is a domain, not in our domain, to make such comparisons. The Gemara says it, it's a Gemara. It's from Tetus Hashem that says so. But no one can come and say that. So therefore, no, I would not state anything of that nature. This goes into the category we don't know. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't show respect to each other? Of course, that's the lessons we learn. And right now, we should learn that lesson. If you and I look at yourself, don't look at anyone else. Don't look at them. You and I feel we should show more respect to each other because we haven't done so. By all means, this is a wake-up call for that. And I know it sounds like a subtle difference because here you're saying we can't say it's, that's the cause and yet we should focus on, on more respect because there's two separate things. The Rambam doesn't say point fingers, especially at others. He's saying be more introspective, be more sensitive. That's how we have to look at it. As soon as it goes into the category of judgmentalism, we're in dangerous territory and we shouldn't be going there. <clears throat> so I would rephrase whoever wrote this question and the others that wrote similar questions. I would say, since this happened during the days of Svira, when we know that our lack of respect for one another it caused a plague and the death of the 24,000 students, now we see a thing like this happen. We have to look at ourselves and say what we can do to add respect to each other and Avis so I completely eliminate, you see, in this, in this context, pointing finger and saying it happened because of that. Because with that attitude, let me ask you something. Are the only, they, all these 45 people were the only ones? And what about thousands of others that may have been pushing or something, someone did something that may have in some way been a little disrespectful? So is it, I don't even want to end the sentence. That's why this is an area we shouldn't go. This is not the Tehrechs this way. You know, even the Holocaust, even, it's not even, but the Holocaust, the Rebbe's famous Sikhs, Vayichi, Shmois, Tavshin Unalaf, 1991, makes it clear you cannot say it's a punishment for all the reasons explained there. And you can look it up there. Okay. I should add that this person who wrote it did conclude, so you know, to his credit, this is a serious question, not an attempt to make a mockery of tragedy. Okay. I understand that, and yet I still stand by what I just said. Okay. In the aftermath of the horrific tragedy in Miran, I made a comment, I made a comment on social media that the 45 people died because by pushing and shoving each other in the line, they didn't respect one another. People said my comment was crass and distasteful. Why is it, a distaste, why is it distasteful to say 45 people died from not respecting each other, but it's not distasteful to teach our kids in school that the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva died because they didn't respect each other. Well, this is just continuing what I just spoke about a few minutes ago in the previous question. First of all, it's distasteful and crass because you're talking about literally an open grave. You don't speak this way when people are crying and grieving and shocked and, and everything that just happened. Whether you should think this way is also incorrect, as I said. We'll get to that in a minute. That's number one. Number two, whoever wrote this on the social media, whoever's writing this question, you're not the Gemara. The Gemara says it. The Gemara says it. That doesn't mean we can suddenly uh, correlate and suddenly start applying things we read one place to another place. Who says, you know, how do you know? That this is the reason. That's set number two. Number three, when the Gemara says it, it's not coming to point fingers, it's coming to teach us something. That we shouldn't behave that way. Going back to my point earlier, if you said on the social media, I am going to do whatever I can to respect others because of what I've learned from this, it would be a different context. But to go and talk about the people that died in this, in this way is very <laughs> inappropriate, insensitive, yes, crass, disrespectful, distasteful, and worse than that. It's, it's, it's completely wrong. It's not the way we, uh, it's not the way the Torah thinks. Okay. Since we're on this topic, some people have been writing about this because clearly it's all coming together. How do we know that Rabbi Akiva's students died because of issues with the how do we know that it wasn't just a virus or a plague? 
historically speaking, we know that plagues struck communities all over the world all the time, especially back in those days when medicine and hygiene were not very advanced. Well, you don't need to go back in those times. We're just coming from COVID ourselves in modern times, just as an aside. How do we know? We know because the Gemara tells us, the Torah tells us. No, obviously, that people die, you don't just make a statement here, people died from COVID. You don't just get up and say, oh, this happened because they were disrespectful, as I've been elaborating. The Gemara tells us, that's how we know. How it happened, God has many ways to do things. But that's what the Gemara tells us. And only where the Gemara tells us. Now, again, lessons to be learned by all means. Every year, that was one of the things the Rebbe spoke about, Lagba Emer, and to the children during Sfirsa Emer, that one of the things we learned is that we have to increase in COVID, Zelazah, as Rajbi personified, who's also a student of Rabbi Akiva. Avis Yisro, Agdus Yisro, sitting together. The Rajbi said. All these different expressions from Psukim and from Chazal and statements all focusing on the message of deeper unity and deeper love. That's the lesson. That's a big far cry from pointing fingers and accusing anyone and becoming judgmental, which is really out of place entirely, especially in a time like this. Okay. Okay, in context of this, another question. Why do we have a period of mourning for Rabbi Akiva students during Sfirah, and not even one day of mourning for the six million victims of the Holocaust? Well, this is a good question, and a question that has been asked in different contexts as well. Not just regarding uh, Sfira. We have Purim celebrating the victory of the Jewish people over against and the abolishment of the decree against them, literally a total genocide. So why don't we have similar things about other events in history? So it's interesting, the Rebbe spoke about this, Purim Tovshin Tezayin. 1956, Purim, yeah. And quoting a Torah Eir, because the question is really broader. After Purim and Hanukkah, Hanukkah would be the last Yom Tov established by Chazal that became for Klal we don't find that events in Jewish history should be commemorated in any way. The question is why? Why does it end right then during the second temple would be the last one, Hanukkah? I'm not talking about private. Some people have they, there's different, the mini Purims as they have in different communities of miracles that happened. I'm talking about something for Klal Yisrael, for all the Jewish people. And the answer, the answer is because the Neshamas, the souls in earlier generations were broader and greater called Neshamas Klal collective souls. So when something happened to one person, it didn't just one person, it was to many. So in a way, whatever happened then is really opened the door for all events that would ever happen. So when we honor, whether it's Pesach or Purim, we're also honoring all the events that would ever happen, all the tragedies, and all the celebrations. When we sit Shiva, when we mourn and grieve for the Beis Amigdash Tishabov, it wasn't just for the destruction of the Temple. The destruction of the Temple was a result of spiritual concealments that would lead to Golas that ultimately also led to the Holocaust. So really when we sit Tishabov, it's also remembering the Holocaust and remembering any loss and tragedy. So two points to really clarify. Two points what happened then were to collective souls, so it's really collective souls to all generations. And secondly, those events were collective in that way. They weren't just because of one event that happened then. So would we designate a day on Lagba Emet to grieve for these 45 neshamas? 
First of all, Svirah Seim is already a time of mourning. So you have that. And it's not just because we don't want to add another day. Because we have the day already. If you really appreciate what, what it says in Arizal, we don't just remember what happened then. They're actually being recreated. Whatever happened on Tisha B'Av the first time, whatever happened on Purim the first time, whatever happened any other special day, either for marking a tragedy or marking a celebration, is happening right now. And when there's an unfortunate event, it is exactly that, and that's how we honor it. We don't add another day for, for that reason. Okay. This last one, well, okay, I read it. I love the Rebbe, but I always hated all the pushing and shoving in 770. It was disrespectful, and in my opinion, it was borderline criminal behavior. I never understood why Chassidim couldn't line up in an orderly manner and wait their turn to walk past the Rebbe. I would always complain and people would laugh at me and say that Semach Tzedek once said that when some of the 36 hidden Sadikim would visit Labavitch, they just came for the pushing and shoving. I find that answer a disgrace, especially after the horrible tragedy in Meron, where pushing and shoving led to a stampede and dozens of people were sadly killed. I beg everyone to behave like dignified human beings and not like animals at these large events. And may God protect our community that these tragedies should never happen again. Well, let me, again, it was not easy for me to read this for obvious reasons because in a time like this, this maybe could be written in a month from now, two months from now. But still, since there are people thinking in this direction, and I've always said the chassidus applied, we need to be talking about what people are thinking about, even if it's we agree or disagree, and clarify. So I would say, when Chassidim talk about the kvetching and the, and the pushing by Fabrengen, they're obviously not talking about being not menschlich or being something that is uh, the words that you use, like animals. That kvetching is a kvetching from love. You know, it says when they were in the time of the Beis Amigdash, they stood tight, they were all crushed. But when they prostrated themselves, prostrated themselves, when they bowed, they would be revochim. They'd be very spacious. It was a miracle, one of the ten miracles. Now what does this emdim tzfufim mean? There are many, many people there. So they have different interpretations, but basically, when many people come together, that will happen. I was in the midst of such situations, not in the Beis Amikdash. I remember when the Rebbe's brachet to the Bochim, we were squeezed like sardines, literally wall to wall, couldn't move. It was a squeezing and a pushing from love, not from not menschlichkeit. No one ever saw it that way. If God forbid anybody behaved in a way that was not menschlich, that's absolutely, as you write, inappropriate. I just wanted to qualify that not always when people, put, when people are pushing like that, it's coming from a negative place. Yes, I have witnessed myself sometimes really inappropriate behavior. I'm not going to go repeat situations, but I remember the Rebbe, the Rebbe ending of Abrengen early because he saw behavior of that nature. And it could be a chilashem besides it's simply inappropriate. In other words, it's not, if it becomes personal, oh, I'm pushing because I want to get ahead in the line, or you, I feel that you pushed in front of me, then it's petty human behavior and, and, and inappropriate, especially for chassidim. But the idea, the etzim idea of people coming together, I mean, we stood the Rebbe blowing Schaefer other times at Fabrengens, that was a loving connection. And in that sense, it's not at all what you're talking about. So, yes, I will acknowledge that anything that's inappropriate is inappropriate. Comparing it to Miran, I don't even want to go there because I don't think that should be brought here. That's a whole other story. This is, no one deserved what happened there. Um, you know, there's a lot of people, you can make many arguments, there are places where a million people come together, and there's, there's crowd control, and there's, there's a control of the environment. Here, probably they're going to definitely look into the play, the exits, and how they went, and I'm not going to start, again, blaming anybody, but to say, because they were all trying to get out, pushing, this is, I don't know if you know the mob, when it comes, the, the, the scene, I'm saying mob is not the right word, I should say, but I'm saying mob scene in the sense that people are crushed, Nobody has any control. That's why it happens. It's not like anybody's pushing ahead of another person. They're trying to get out. A lot of people in a very narrow place. 
So I want to just qualify that in the context of what we're discussing. Okay, many, many more questions. I have at least 30 more questions that came in or discussion. Just can't cover it all. So I hope I did some justice. Above all, above all, I definitely would love, welcome and appreciate the interactive element where you write your questions and I try to respond. But above all, this is a time of, of humility, a time of introspection, a time, of course, of grieving. We have to all be very careful, and especially in a time like this, of, of accusing accusations or hurling accusations or judgmentalism or any of the other stuff. It's not the time for that. Now's the time for putting our hearts together, crying together, beseeching God, beseeching Rajbi, beseeching the Rebbe, and doing whatever we can to strengthen ourselves in Torah, Mitzvahs, and Yiddishkeit. Coming to Matan Torah, when we stood at Mount Sinai, like one person, like one heart. That's what's required now. It's not about you're right and I'm wrong, or I'm right and you're wrong. We're all in it together. The people that die tragically, they are our, not just brothers and sisters, they are our limbs. They're part of one organism. They're part of us. If something happened to them, it happened to us. Think of it that way. That's what the Yerushalmi says. We're all part of one organism. So where do we even have room to say, oh, they did something? That's you. That they is you. It's like saying the right hand did something, and that's why the left hand should hit the right hand. That doesn't work that way. We're part of one thing. Are there things to correct? By all means. Introspection, soul searching. That's what we need to be taking away from all of this. Which leads me to the next part of this. Since the week is Pasha's Bahar the last chapters in Sefer Vayikra. So I want to speak about that a bit. Okay. So, Often, sometimes these chapters come separately, sometimes they come together. In uh, the one question did come in about Parsha Bahar, what is the significance of the Yevil year? Why is Yevil year able to cancel debts and land ownerships? So, usually I would answer that question one way, but since in the context of events in the last few days, I'll respond to that in that context. And that is... Yevil, of course, is the Jubilee. It's the 50th year. The 50th year, we know the Shemitah. Pasha Bahar begins with the mitzvah of Shemitah. The Shemitah was that every seventh year be the sabbatical year. We shall rest in the agricultural times. shall rest your land and rest your vineyards and all your agricultural activities. One year should be Shabbos Lashem. So like we have Shabbos in the week, but there, no work is permitted. So there's once, every seventh year, the no work in the fields are permitted. So this explains the difference between Shvisa Besoda, meaning Shabbos for the fields, and Shabbos for all work. It's a Machzadik in Derech Mitzvah and other places. But then comes Yevil. Yevil is seven times seven, the 50th year, seven Shemitahs, and then will be the 50th. Similar to Shvisa you count seven weeks. Sheva Shavuos, and the 50th day, after 49 days of 7 times 7 weeks, you come to the 50th day, which is Shavuos. So the Yevil is the 50th year. I mean, there are different opinions, exactly the calculations. But let's not go into that now. And the Yevil Taka says that, then you will, that, that all debts are canceled, and land ownerships and other things, because it's, it's, it's called a Shonad Dechiro. It's a time of freedom. Freedom, freedom from all trappings and all and all uh, contracts and so on. And there's all kinds of discussion about that as well. Shemitah, there's also an element of that, what that means. But on a spiritual level, the meaning of it is very clear. Yevil was a day that God's giving us to be able to free ourselves of past commitments and bonds. We're talking about unhealthy ones. And limited ones. Like similar when we do call Nidre and we say that all the Nidarim, all the vows and oaths and promises are all annulled. Basically, it comes from the word Nedr, comes from the word to bind us. 
So all the blinds free us of our past so we can start a new year. So Yevil was a way of a freedom, like a new stage in life. A new stage in life where all the previous bonds are, we free ourselves from. It's in Pasha Bahar. So how do we learn a lesson from that? We learn a lesson from that, that all the experiences in life, especially the ones that are tragic and sad, are all part of constrained situations that come from the symptom, as I discussed earlier. They come from limited divine energy being concealed from us. So Yevil teaches us, even though we don't practice Yevil today until the Beis Amigdash comes, but still the spiritual lesson from it is that, and maybe that's why we're reading it, the day after the tragedy in Miran, that we should all experience a Yevil within our souls, an ability to not allow ourselves to be trapped even by the sadness and to be able to experience freedom and ultimately free ourselves from this grief as we grieve and we need to grieve and experience the true Geula Amitiz Vashlema because the Yevil ultimately is a taste of Geula. So we read about it. It's a type of Nechama that we will come to the Geula as we were promised and they will experience the ultimate Yevil as the topic of Chamishim Nunalofim Yevlis which is the Nunalofim 5,000 Yevils. This is about levels that will come when the Geula comes level after level of experiencing higher levels of divine revelation. Okay. With that, let's go to Pasha B'chukesai. Pasha B'chukesai sadly talks about the Teichacha, the curses. Why are there curses in the Teira? So this is a topic I've spoken about in the past and actually connected to Lagba Imir as well. So let's address that for a moment. In the Gemara Moed Katn, Davches, the Alter Rebbe cites it and explains it in Kutetera, this week's Parsha B'chukese. It tells the story, Rajbi, Rabshimim Bayechoi, Balhe Lula of Lagbeimer, tells his son, Rabbi Lozer, to go to receive a blessing, to travel to the, to the West and to receive a blessing from the G'delim there, the Tamidich HaChamim. Rabbi Lazar follows his father's orders and goes. But to his chagrin, to his dismay, instead of blessings, they say to him things that he felt were curses. And he couldn't believe it. Came back, shocked, disturbed. And his father said, what happened? He says, you told me to get the blessing, they cursed me. So his father said, what did they tell you? And he repeated, the Gemara goes into detail what they said. So his father said, the truth is, these are all really blessings. And he began to interpret that each thing they said to them was really a hidden blessing. So of course, the obvious question that everybody asks, if they're going to bless him, just bless him. Why do you have to hide it in cryptic language? So the different answers given, but the Al-Tareb and B'chukese answers, because sometimes brachas are so deep they cannot be revealed in the narrow containers of revelation. It can only be con- expressed through chsodim nistodim. And I guess, okay, the Altareb also brings this concept. But here he brings it in the context of the Gemara in Mayat Cotton. That Samach Tzedek actually is the one in Hagar there, c- relates it to the Gemara in Mayat Cotton. The Altareb just speaks about the topic that Samach Tzedek and his additions look at the Tehra connected. And what you see from this is that sometimes deeper blessings come in that form and fashion. Now, I hesitate, and I want to make sure to make sure to emphasize, I'm not suggesting this tragedy was because God wanted to send us deeper brachas. Even though in concept that is true, but that's not what is said, as I said, literally when the graves are open. Because now we cry out. We don't say, oh, thank you for giving us deeper blessings. Even though the Gemara says, "Kishem shemavarchim ala bracha, kach mavarchim ala klola," just as you bless, bless God on a blessing, also on a curse. But there are times we also have to have the empathy and compassion. The same Teda tells us, "Vayudem Aaron, Aaron didn't just say, oh, my sons died.' It's a really a blessing." Ultimately, we, we may see it, and we should see it, but we don't say that right now, 
But at the same time, we definitely learn a lesson from this. We learn a lesson that we need to transform every curse into a blessing. And that's what Rajbi did to Rabbi Lozer. When he heard the negative, he translated it into a positive. So that's one of the things we can learn from this parasha, which also explains why there are curses. God is not, God forbid, cursing anyone. First of all, there are consequences, but the curses really are deeper blessings. And sometimes that's the only way they can come through. Just like coming into this world has its challenges, but ultimately we fulfill God's purpose only in this world. In Gan Eden, there's no death. In Gan Eden, there's no pain. But you cannot fulfill the purpose of existence in Gan Eden. Only in Tachtenim, in the lowest of worlds, which Tachtenim means the divine conceal- concealment of the divine. That's where we can transform it into Adirabit Tachtenim and it will come all revealed in the time of the coming of Mashiach. Okay. I want to talk about one more thing and then I'll do a Chassidus question connected to this and, some, and the essays. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, why does the Torah discriminate against handicaps and the, against handicapped people? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your life, Chassidus, for, for your My Life Chassidus Applied Sessions. I learned so much each week. As a mother of a child who has a mild physical handicap, I have a very hard time to understand why the Torah discusses at length in Pasha's Emer, last week's Pasha, the different blemishes that render a Kayin unfit to serve in the Beis Amigdash, in the Holy Temple. It seems to me that Hashem is the one who gives the person the blemish, so why take away the opportunity to serve in the, in the Beis Amigdash? On the contrary, the person who has struggled can probably serve with a humbler heart than someone who has not had any challenges. And why does the Torah talk about it at length and mention all different types of physical handicaps? I am sure this is not the case, but it does not seem kind. I would really like to know if the Rebbe has any letters or sikhs that can help me better understand these halachas. I know the Rebbe called the Israeli veterans mitsuyanim, special ones, the excellent ones, the, the exemplary. I like that, and it seems more in line with the way to treat a person with a handicap. Can you elaborate? Thank you again. So I actually discussed this very directly in episodes 117, 118, based on a mimer from the Alter Rebbe, and based, and Samach Tzedek has a powerful mimer, which is essentially the mimer of the Alter Rebbe with additions, in Derech Mitzvah Secha, Sefer Mitzvah, the mitzvah of this mitzvah, of Bali Mum Kaihanim, priests that have a handicap or a blemish, cannot serve in the Beis Amidosh. And he asks exactly this question, not exactly the context of empathy, but what's the reason? And interestingly, he asked that question, asked this question as well. Eating truma, they're allowed to do. So it's not a blemish that that apostles that disqualifies them as priests. It's only from serving. I elaborated there, and I really refer you to go there. Go to chsidasupply.com and just type in one seventeen or episode one seventeen one eighteen. You'll find it. It's more elaborate there. Here I'll just say one short brief thought from there, from this mimer. He explains that when a person has that blemish, God is, yes, God created it. It's not the person's fault, but it has an element that actually is strangely a blessing. What is the blessing? The blessing is because when we live in a world that's not complete, some of us become so-called personified, that lack of completion. And he gives an example for it, that when you're fighting a war, and you're the war of Gaulus, one of the tactics used is to draw the enemy is you send someone from your side out into the open field. So the enemy comes out to attack. And that reveals where the enemy is. So that person may be a casualty and may get hurt, but it's in order for the, to, to, to win the larger battle. It's an example he gives. The Rebbe actually brings this example in the words he said after his brother, Rabbi Yisrael Arilei, passed away to Gimel Ir, Tafshinud Beis, in a footnote. Now, it's an example that needs to be elaborated upon. It's not so simple, because you'll say, why some people chosen for this? Why are they the unlucky ones? So this is already God's mysterious ways, and I have no answer for that just like we have no answer with the tragedy in Iran. But something about it that can be redeeming. So it's not a discrimination against them. The 
Torah would never discriminate. A human being is God's Tzalem Alekim. It's just saying that in a sense they represent that we live in a world that's still incomplete. So in a sense they're not serving is actually a deeper way of serving. It's not through serving, it's through showing that we have still an incomplete thing and we need to correct that. That's briefly the answer, which is also explains why the Rebbe called these soldiers special. Or we call spe- children with certain handicaps, or all handicaps, special children. It's not just a euphemism, it's not just a, a mockery, or so to speak. It's really demonstrating they have something special. So why they deserve that special and others, we don't know. But they have something to teach us and something we learn from them and something they help in the tikkun and the repair of this wounded world. Okay. So now briefly, there was a chassidist question. And again, I wrote, yeah, chassidist question. Um, there's more to talk about, but okay. The chassidist question is... Dear Rabbi Jacobson, first, thank you so much for all your teachings. Question: How do we? How should? How we should? How do we reconcile two seemingly contradictory theories in Chassidus? Hashgacha Pratis, when even the movement of a blade of grass is directed by God. Betochen, that thing good and it will be good. Everything is in the hands of Hashem. And number two, the opposite: that which is above is from you. You yourself are the maker of what is coming to you from above. Thank you. So briefly, and I especially brought this question because we see here events that are not in our control, God. On the other hand, we're told we do have the control of our destiny. The answer briefly is this, with another question. Why do we pray when a person, God forbids, in a hospital? God knows best. He runs the world. What, are we challenging God's plan? And yet God said, Befeirish, pray, you're a partner with me. We pray because we are partners and we can control and change destiny. Yehirotzen. May it be your will. We want to change your will. Your will is, let's say this person is decreed, something should happen to them, God forbid. So we pray, change your will. But at the end of the day, after all our prayers, there is only one God. He will make the decision. So that's one That's one point. We have to do everything we can, and that does not contradiction, because that itself is what God wants us to do, and still God runs the world. The second thing, Hakol Bidei Shemayim Chutzmiyur Shemayim. Yes, God runs the control but he gave us one area of free will. How we're going to behave when something happens. We can't control events around us, but we can control our attitude. And we will control our bechira, our free will regarding the things of good and evil, right and wrong. So there too you have, on one hand, but it does not take away our free will. Now, very quickly and briefly, the 21st place winners of the 2020 My Life Chassidus Applied Essay and Creative Contest, the English essay, Music, Betochen, and Mental Health by Yale Kane, age 27, B'nai's Chamesh Academy, music teacher in New York. Addressing exactly that. It's a very beautiful essay, taking how music and trust in God, mental health, all, compl- all lead to be- better mental health based on Chassidus. The Creative Contest, was Conquering Pleasures, a video by Mendel Cyrulnik, age 14, student in Melbourne, Australia. These two can be seen at chassidusapply.com. Just go to the essay winners, creative winners, that you can see it and listen to it and read it. And the two essays in Hebrew, one for men, is Maimer Ma'ayin Liesh, where he talks about how you get beyond boredom and monotony, to understanding the renewal of existence all the time. Yisaf, Yisaf Alperovich, student in Kfar Chabad, Israel. And the Hebrew essay, in women, Shlichus Mashmotit, meaningful Shlichus. Dr. Dorita Dina, Kiryat Shmuel, Haifa, Israel. A beautiful and powerful essay about bringing together the idea of uh, the Shlichus, what Torah talks about, and the Chassidus talks about, and the Rebbe speaks about, Together with Dr. Frankel's view about meaningful life, living a life of meaning, man's search for meaning, and how that meaning is so significant, but how Chassidus adds to it in teaching us what it is to really be and have a meaningful mission in this world. So with that, we conclude episode 353.
of my life, Chassidus Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m., and I want to finalize, finally say the following words, and that is me. All those that need consolation for the deaths of their family members in this tragic day in Iran. And may all those that need a complete refuge shlema have a complete and speedy healing and recovery. And all of us should be strengthened and take the nechama consolation and turn it into positive actions in the schus of these neshamas. And may this program and all that it and all that it spawns be in the schus and merit of these great neshamas that were taken on Lagba Emir. We should only have simchas going forward and we should finally march to the Gula Amitiz Vashlema with the ultimate simcha, the transformation of all the negative into a positive. Everyone be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.